Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Philip Munoz, and I'm the director of the Tocqueville program, and it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you to today's uh, event. Um, I just wanted to start off, um, we delayed our start just for a few minutes. As, uh, as I'm sure you know, there's an interfaith prayer service, which probably just concluded, uh, and uh, we couldn't reschedule this event. Um, and I'm sorry if I know some of you probably wanted to make it to that. Um, we just couldn't reschedule the event this late in the day, but I wanted to uh, read Father Jenkins' statement, um, uh, and it's uh, especially appropriate uh, way for us to begin today. And then afterwards, if you just uh, join me in a moment of prayer, um, <clears throat> Father Jenkins uh, wrote the following. On behalf of the University of Notre Dame, I extend my deepest condolences to the families and friends of the shooting victims in, in Christchurch and to their extended family among the Muslim students faculty and staff here at Notre Dame and in South Bend. In this season of Lent, we offer our prayers for our brothers and sisters, believers who were so cruelly murdered in houses of worship. In our lifetime, may we see an end to the brutal religious bias and hatred that results in the shooting of, innocent, of innocence and shedding of innocent blood across the world. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm thrilled uh, with today's event. Uh, a few years ago, in fact, one of the very first things the Tocqueville program did um, is we started a series that we, we like to call Professors for Lunch. And the idea behind it was um, to, uh, to celebrate the accomplishments of our own faculty. Um, professors uh, like Dan Philpot, they publish these books. They go all around the country, all around the world, and they speak about their work. Um, but sort of ironically, not here necessarily at Notre Dame. And so we started this lunch series uh, to, to really celebrate our own. And uh, Professor Philpot is the first uh, professor we're having uh, for dessert. This is his second book. He writes, he tends to write books faster than most of our faculty. So this is the second time we're uh, uh, celebrating a Philpot book. Um, Dan is a, a prolific and wonderful scholar. Uh, uh, he's an even better friend and colleague. So we're absolutely thrilled to uh, be celebrating uh, Dan's accomplishment. This is just one of many events we have this semester. Just a, a brief advertisement. We have a couple, uh, an extraordinary couple of weeks coming up. So uh, I'll go through these quickly. But you're invited to all of them. Uh, next week, we have two big events. Uh, we're co-sponsoring with the Dean's Fellows, uh, which should be a very interesting debate. This is next Wednesday night. Uh, is it time to give socialism a try? Maybe not, but you should still come <laughs> to, the, to the debate. <laughs> That's next Wednesday night. Uh, uh, and two wonderful scholars uh, joining us for that, that conversation. Uh, uh, next Thursday, um, so a week from today at this exact time, over at the law school, uh, we're having what should be a very interesting lecture by Judge uh, Amul Thapar. Uh, he's on the um, uh, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. He's uh, also one of the uh, judge, judges on Trump's shortlist. And he's going to be speaking about uh, religious freedom jurisprudence. Uh, so that's Judge Amul Thapar. We're going to do that over at the law school for obvious reasons. Uh, I hope you can join us for that. On April 8th, uh, we're having um, uh, Yoram uh, Hazani, who's published a book called The End, uh, the, I'm sorry, The Virtue of Nationalism. It's won some major awards. 
Uh, he's an Israeli scholar. Uh, that's on April 8th, and I believe that's um, going to be at 3.30 in the afternoon. Uh, please join us for that. And then uh, on April 16th, which I believe will be our last event for the semester, uh, should be a wonderful event. We'll be celebrating the publication of Father Miss Campbell's new biography of Father Hesburgh. Um, well, some of us will be celebrating the event. Others might be criticizing uh, the book. We're, what we wanted to do for Father Miss Campbell, much what we're doing uh, for Professor Philpot, is um, we honor the book by having a real scholarly engagement with it, saying what we like, but also what we uh, might have reservations about. So we're going to do that with uh, Father Miss Campbell uh, next month. Uh, today we're uh, talking about Dan Philpot's book, Religious Freedom in Islam, and I'm going to call Toby Honehout to the, to the stage to properly introduce our speakers. Toby's a uh, graduating senior. Um, he was a, ma a managing editor of the Observer last semester, last year, just finished that, and he's one of our Tokyo fellows. Toby? Thank you, Dr. Munoz, for that generous introduction. Uh, and it is my pleasure to introduce today's panel uh, in the order of their speaking. Starting with Dr. Daniel Philpot, who's a professor of political science at Notre Dame. He is a scholar of religion and global politics and has written on reconciliation, religious freedom, theories of politics of religious communities, sovereignty, self-determination, the role of the Catholic Church in global politics, and Christian political philosophy. Dr. Philpott graduated with a BA from the University of Virginia and went on to earn an MA and a PhD from Harvard University. He has published and has edited several books and his writing has appeared in the American Political Science Review, World Politics, Ethics, the Journal of Religious Ethics, America, First Things, and more. Dr. Philpott recently co-directed the Under Caesar's Sword Project a three-year collaborative global research initiative that investigated how Christian communities respond when their religious freedom is severely violated. He is a senior associate scholar of the Religious Freedom Institute in Washington, DC. And his most recent book is the subject of our discussion today, Religious Freedom in Islam, The Fate of a Universal Human Right in the Muslim World Today. Dr. Mahan Mirza is the lead faculty member for the University of Notre Dame's Contending Modernities Project which is based in the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and is funded by the Templeton Foundation. Contending Modernities is a major interdisciplinary effort to generate new knowledge and greater understanding of the ways in which religious and secular forces interact in the modern world. Dr. Mirza holds a BS in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Texas at Austin, an MA from Hartford Seminary, and a PhD in Religious Studies from Yale University. From 2013 to 2016, Dr. Mirza served as Dean of Faculty at Zaytuna College, America's first accredited Muslim liberal arts college in Berkeley, California. He has taught a range of courses in Arabic Islamic studies, Western religions, and history of science, along with foundational subjects in the liberal arts, including logic, rhetoric, law, astronomy, ethics, and politics. Dr. Mirza has edited two special issues of the Muslim world and served as assistant editor for the Princeton Encyclopedia of Islamic Political Thought. And finally, John L. Allen Jr. is an editor of Crux, specializing in coverage of the Vatican and the Catholic Church. He has written 11 books on the Vatican and Catholic affairs, most recently, The Francis Miracle, Inside the Transformation of the Pope and the Church. Widely respected for his 20 plus years of covering the Vatican, 
John's articles have appeared in the Boston Globe, the New York Times, CNN, NPR, The Nation, and more. He is a senior Vatican analyst for CNN and was a correspondent for the National Catholic Reporter for 16 years. John received a bachelor's degree in philosophy from Fort Hayes State University and a master's degree in religious studies from the University of Kansas. And he has also received honorary doctorates from the University of St. Michael's College in Toronto, Ontario, Lewis University in Roman, Romeoville, Illinois, St. Michael's College in Colchester, Vermont, and the University of Dallas. Um, please join me in welcoming today's panel. Thank you, thank you very much for that wonderful, wonderful welcome. And uh, thank you to Philip Munoz for or organizing this, for the invitation. Um, Tofield does so much of uh, uh, well, some of the most in intellectually exciting things around here at Notre Dame. So we're going to very, be very grateful to him. Thanks to Jen Smith for pulling this together. Um, very honored to have uh, Professor Mahan Mirza and, and John Allen. I'm going to be more, more honored to have both of them uh, make the effort to come and, and speak about the book. On uh, the professors for lunch theme, I uh, can't help but chuckle a little bit. When I was in graduate school, I was part of a, a seminar on national security policy, and um, it, was, it had a kind of aggressive tone to it. The graduate students would come, and it was one of those the kind of atmosphere where everybody's uh, goal was to kind of you know, launch the most devastating warhead at the speaker uh, as possible. <laughs> but they would always begin by saying, we're happy to have our guest for lunch today. So I always wondered exactly what that meant. So whether you're here to join me for lunch or eat me for lunch, uh, either way, I, I welcome you and, and thank, thank you that you're here. Oh, here we are. Oh, sorry. <laughs> going to be ahead for lunch here trying to figure out how to work the technology. In June 2009, Barack Obama, early in his first term as President of the United States, delivered a most unusual speech in Cairo, Egypt. Instead of directing his words to the citizens of a country or a parliament, he spoke to members of a world religion, Islam. It was perhaps the first time that a U.S. president had chosen an entire religion as his audience. President Obama spoke to Muslims because he was convinced that great tension had developed between the United States and the Muslim world and that bridges needed to be built. He proposed that the U.S. and the Muslim world could reduce tensions by working together on issues ranging from violent extremism to women's rights to nuclear prol proliferation to religious freedom. The inclusion of that last principle, religious freedom, was far from inevitable. Just over a decade earlier, Congress had mandated that U.S. foreign policy promote religious freedom through the International Religious Freedom Act. Some critics charged that this was cultural imposition, particularly with respect to Islam, and that it would only reignite the clash of civilizations, the very conflict that Obama had hoped to quench. Obama, however, spoke of religious freedom warmly and forcefully, even pointing out that the United States hosts 1,200 mosques. He surely would have condemned sharply the recent atrocities in New Zealand on this very basis. Like President Obama at Cairo, my book addresses an entire religion, Islam, and poses the question of religious freedom. The question could be asked of any religion or country or civilization, 
but for three reasons is urgent to ask of Islam. First, something on the order of a culture war has been raging in the West at least as far back as the attacks of September 11, 2001. Hawkish voices say that Islam is hardwired for violence and incompatible with democracy and human rights, and that the West must gird up for a long civilizational struggle against this threat. Those blind to this threat are today's Neville Chamberlains. Dovish voices hold that Islam, like every religion, is historically malleable and diverse, home to a few extremists, but otherwise hospitable to human rights and democracy, that the West history of colonialism and military aggression are responsible for no small part of Islam's problems, and that dialogue and peacebuilding are called for. Hawkish voices, in their, in their view, stoke the very controversy that they decry. Again and again, this controversy can be heard on talk radio, cable news, and the internet, but also in higher-brow venues like the Weekly Standard and the New Republic. The controversy has real stakes. In the 2016 presidential campaign, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton argued much along these lines. <coughs> Once President Trump took office, he issued a ban on immigration from seven Muslim-majority countries and on admitting refugees from Syria. He repeatedly voiced anti-Muslim rhetoric and tweeted out anti-Muslim videos. Hate crimes against Muslims in the U.S. demonstrably increased during his campaign and shortly after his election. A second reason why I pose the question of religious freedom in Islam is that religious freedom is demonstrably a force multiplier for peace and justice, correlated inversely with civil war and religious terrorism, and positively with democracy, economic development, and the advancement of women, all areas in which the Muslim-majority world faces disproportionate challenges. Finally, and quite simply, religious freedom is a matter of justice, a human right that protects persons and communities in their pursuit of answers to the ultimate question of life. Religious freedom is one of the most widely violated human rights in the world. Some three-quarters of the world lives under a regime that restricts religious freedom to a high or very high degree, according to the Pew Research Center. Violations of religious freedom can mean killing, torture, and imprisonment of people for their religion, the prohibition of religious worship, and the destruction of houses of worship, but also lesser but still egregious forms of discrimination. In the Muslim world, religious freedom is denied to religious minorities and dissenters, as well as to Muslim-majority populations at the hands of secular governments, some of them propped up by the West. Muslim minorities also experience discrimination in worse in Western countries. Think again of New Zealand. But is religious freedom a fair standard to pose towards the Muslim world? At a recent conference on the subject that I attended, Muslims told me that in the Muslim world, religious freedom is widely associated with libertine trends in Western culture, and is viewed as a Trojan horse for well-endowed Christian missionaries. What is more, religious freedom has become contested by intellectuals in Western universities who associate the principle closely with Western modernity and colonialism. <coughs> One of the things I would most like to bring about through the book is a gestalt shift through which religious freedom comes to be seen as a universal human principle rather than a Western export. Religious freedom is far less easily associated with Western modernity than many critics believe, I argue. And, I also argue, is rooted in natural law, accessible to every human through reason. Now, I am well aware that arguments from natural law are rare in today's academy, 
uh, I would hope that they would be a little less rare here at Notre Dame, and that proponents of natural law must confront the historical and cultural variability in the principle's acceptance. Still in the book, I make a case that religious freedom is a universal human right, not just on paper, but in fact, as a natural right, that is. How then does Islam fare by the criterion of religious freedom? Over the next three chapters, I look at the 47 or so Muslim-majority states in the world. From a global satellite view, the hawkish view seems to be closer to the mark. I call it Islamo-skepticism in the book. These states are, the 47 together, averaged up, are on average less free than the rest of the world, as some of these statistics show. Zooming in closer, however, Islam, the Muslim world, appears more complex as the dovish or Islamo-pluralist voices, as I call it in the book, would have it. 11 out of 47 Muslim-majority countries, actually that's supposed to be 11, not 12, uh, it's an earlier version, or just over one-fourth are in fact religiously free. Although these states are a minority, they are far from anomalies. The largest concentration of them is in West Africa, I call them the West Africa Seven, Mali, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Guinea, and others. Muslims are devout here. The Pew Forum reports that Sub-Saharan Africa is the most religious region of the world. These countries are free then, not despite Islam, but because of Islam, or more accurately, the kind of Islam that is practiced. Prevalent here is Sufi spirituality and a history of Islam being brought to the region, not through conquest, but rather through missionaries and traders who had to make accommodations with local chieftains and religious leaders. Making the case further for diversity in the Muslim world, of the 35 Muslim-majority countries that are less than fully free, 15 are secular repressive, meaning that the regime controls and marginalizes Islam in order to further a Western ideology of modernization. The standard bearer of this pattern is the Republic of Turkey, established in 1923 by Kemal Ataturk, who viewed Islam as a medieval break on progress that must be marginalized to the private realm. In his efforts to rid Islam of social influence, Ataturk even regulated headgear, through which he could thought, thought he could get inside heads, apparently. Egypt followed suit under Nasser in the 1950s, and many other Arab states have fit the model along with Central Asian republics after the end of the Cold War. True, the other 21 of these states are religiously repressive, where the state governs according to an Islamist ideology through which it promotes and enforces a strongly traditional form of Islam. Saudi Arabia and Iran are the standard bearers of this model, other examples being Sudan, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Although these countries fit what the hawks have in mind, it is important to remember that many of them arose in response to Western colonialism and are enabled in their repression by the modern sovereign state. So the Muslim world suffers from a global dearth of religious freedom, yet is modeled with states, movements, and intellectuals that further religious freedom. Might religious freedom be increased in the Muslim world? A later chapter looks at seven seeds of freedom, which are potentialities found in Islamic history and tradition, and discusses how they might be developed further. Another chapter looks for models for developing freedom within a religion. The Western media often opines that what Islam needs is a reformation or an enlightenment, but neither of these historical analogies are likely to appeal to Muslims. 
There is a better analogy, which is the Catholic Church's long road to religious freedom, culminating in the Declaration of 1965, Dignitatis Humanae. Like Islam, Catholicism long predated modernity, was widely seen as an enemy of modernity, and rejected religious freedom for a long time as an expression of modernity, but eventually found a way to embrace religious freedom for reasons rooted in its own tradition, not the reasons of modernity. Still another chapter looks at the wave of democratic uprisings once called the Arab Spring, but no longer due to their rather wintry outcome. Religious freedom explains much of, about why most of them resulted in dictatorship or civil war, but in one case, greater freedom. The book closes with six recommendations for increasing religious freedom in the Muslim world. All in all, the book is a dialogue with Muslims about a principle whose promotion and protection would carry benefits for all. Thank you. There are some seats in the front if you want to. <coughs> You're good there if you need an exit strategy. <laughs> well, I'd um, like to thank the Tokubal program for um, organizing this uh, event and um, to Professor Philpot for writing this wonderful book. It's an honor to be here. After the U.S. and coalition forces deposed Saddam Hussein in 2003, Baghdad disintegrated into chaos. The looting of national treasures in particular prompted incisive diagnoses from members of the Bush administration. White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer reasoned, what you are seeing is a reaction to oppression. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld joked, stuff happens, freedom's untidy. Two years later, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. On September 5th, notes one columnist, a Washington Post reporter caught up with specialist Frank Atkinson of Arkansas, wearing desert fatigues from his recent Iraq deployment, driving a Humvee through New Orleans streets and holding suspected looters at gunpoint with an M4 rifle. It's just so much like Iraq, it's not funny, he said. Except for all the water, and they speak English. <laughs> Freedom is a complex term. It is value-laden, it can be subjective, and per Rumsfeld, it's untidy. One of our Madrasa Dialogue students found this out the hard way. Immersed in a contentious debate with a female Pakistani student covered from head to toe, including a face veil, our Notre Dame student was taken aback when her Pakistani colleague said she imagined women like herself to be freer than her American counterparts. I can only dream of possessing the poise and maturity exhibited by our undergraduate student, who stepped back, took a deep breath, and proceeded to draw on theoretical concepts like subsidiarity to not only understand, but value the opposing point of view. I highly recommend that blog, which can be found on our Contending Modernities website. It's titled, Freedom, an Intercultural Definition. 
Professor Daniel Philpott steps into this contested terrain in his remarkable work on religious freedom in Islam. The book takes on a lot. The public debate and ideological deadlock between Islamo-skeptics and Islamo-pluralists, competing readings of scripture within Islam, positive versus negative trajectories of secularism in the West, enduring effects of colonialism, seeds of freedom in Catholic and Muslim theology, and policy recommendations for a more peaceful U.S. and Western foreign policy. There are thus many books in this one. Analysis of quantitative data of 47 Muslim countries on religious freedom, grappling with complex and contested histories, reasoning with sacred and scriptural texts, and promotion of religious freedom in diplomacy. The book is strongest in its qualitative analysis of available data, working closely with the Government Restrictions Index and Social Hostilities Index developed at the Pew Research Center, Professor Philpott places 47 Muslim-majority countries into three categories. You just heard about this. It's going to be a little bit repetitious. Eleven of them are religiously free. Fifteen are secular repressive states, and another 21 are religiously repressive states. Clustering each category on a map as a visual aid, which is extremely helpful, Professor Philpott goes through each in detail to explain his analysis and typology. The conclusions are counterintuitive. The religiously free states, argues <laughs> Professor Philpott, are free not because of the absence of Islam, but because of its presence and even centrality in private and public life. These free sta states represent a full quarter of the Muslim world in number of Muslim-majority countries, not in population. But uh, as such, they are by no means outliers. They are not only what Islam can be, but in fact what Islam actually is on the ground. Of the Muslim states that are not free, or maybe less free in, on the spectrum, almost half are unfree because of a particular kind of negative secularism, hostile to religion imported from and supported by the West. Islam is not the problem for these states. It is the brutal repression of Islam, not to mention other minority religions in Muslim-majority contexts, by forces alien to Islam that is the problem. The remainder of the countries, the third category, just less than one-half of the total number of Muslim-majority countries, are, it is to be admitted, religiously repressive because of Islamic laws. For these states, among which are strong U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia and most populous Muslim countries like Indonesia and Pakistan, Professor Philpott offers hope by outlining a path toward religious freedom that is not imported from the West, but sprouted by watering seeds of freedom that lie dormant, deep in the fertile soil of the Islamic religious tradition. In the present rhetorical free-for-all climate on all things Islamic, fact-based studies with rigorous analysis of the kind presented by Professor Philpott are badly needed. The work is a welcome addition alongside similar brilliant works like Charles Kurtzman, The Missing Martyrs, Why There Are So Few Muslim Terrorists, Robert Pape, Dying to Win, 
the strategic logic of suicide terrorism. Esposito and Mujahid, who speaks for Islam? What a billion Muslims really think. And Stephen Fish, are Muslims distinctive? A look at the evidence. Each of these studies offers profound insights into the question that President Trump asked when proposing the Muslim ban. What the hell is going on? <laughs> Robert Pape, for example, shows a direct correlation between foreign occupation and suicide bombing. Esposito and Mujahid's data suggest that Muslims and Americans are equally likely to reject attacks on civilians as morally unjustified. In fact, those who justify attacks on civilians, when pushed, offer purely political reasons, not religious ones. And those who reject such attacks under all circumstances do so on religious grounds. Yes, please feel free to take some of these chairs. Kurtzman crunches the numbers to give Americans some good news. He says, there aren't very many Islamist terrorists. And most of them are incompetent. <laughs> and they fight their potential state sponsors most of all. Stephen Fish's quantitative analysis shows that Muslims are statistically distinct in a few areas. When it comes to homicide in their societies in particular, this is what he says. The differences are dramatic. The average number of intentional homicides in the Muslim world is 2.4 per 100,000 people per year, while it is 7.5 per 100,000 people per year in non-Muslim countries. And we see that the worst murder rate in the Muslim group is far lower than the average rate in the Christian group. According to new research from the University of Alabama, The Guardian reports, terrorist attacks committed by Muslim extremists receive 357% more US press coverage than those committed by non-Muslims. This despite the fact that between 2008 and 2016, white and right-wing terrorists carried out nearly twice as many attacks as Muslim extremists. Washington Post reports that between 2011 and 2015, the attacks committed by Muslims were just 12.4% of the 89 documented attacks by various perpetrators. Just yesterday, Professor Todd Green, in a piece on Western violence and the scapegoating of Islam, cites a study from 2015 showing that the New York Times depicts Islam more negatively than alcohol, cancer, and cocaine. <laughs> So we need good data and fact-based analyses to get a grip on what the hell is going on. Professor Philpott's contribution to this noble genre will, I hope, be of lasting consequence for students, scholars, journalists, and policymakers. So before concluding my remarks, I'd like to pose a few questions regarding the framing, the method, and the thesis of the book that we might take up in the discussion. Framing. The book is framed around the problem of Muslim violence and terrorism. In attempting to mediate a seemingly intractable public debate on Islam, the book gives Islamophobes a new label of Islamoskeptics, thus awarding respectability to the unfounded and what I think is untenable 
position that proneness to violence is hardwired into Islamic texts and doctrines. In, it's in the DNA. This framing seems to me to rely maybe a little too much on media hype and misrepresentation rather than on hard data. The question, is there a better way to frame the book than by giving credibility to Islamophobic ideas? In doing so, the author at times ends up inadvertently duplicating misinformation. I'm going to be a little provocative with an example of this is uh, the representation of Iran's government as being especially vilifying to Jews. The author, I believe, mistakes criticism of Zionist settler policies with criticism of all Jews. And the calling for a one-state solution where Jews and Palestinians live together as equivalent to the destruction of the state of Israel. That Iran is home to the second largest population of Jews in the Middle East is an indication of a certain complexity that I think in this instance the book misses. But we need that nuance um, to advance the fiery public debate that is stalemated. Method. The author's stated research question and method appears most clearly at the start of chapter 2. Is Islam hospitable to religious freedom? This is a quote. Is Islam hospitable to religious freedom? There is no better way to answer the central question of this book than by looking closely at the Muslim world. End quote. Here, I wonder if the terms might be chosen more carefully. Is a snapshot of the Muslim world really an indication of what Islam is? Would a snapshot of Christian majority countries today be an indication of what Christianity is? Could one look at US foreign policy, for example, and call it a Christian foreign policy? Given that four of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council are Christian majority, and they also hold the largest shares in military expenditure and the global arms trade, can we consider these Christian actions? Thesis. Although the book can be said to have multiple theses, I think there are many books woven together, beautifully done. One, religious freedom is a universal human right. The Islamic tradition contains seeds of freedom. I identify the following as the main thesis threading the book. And I quote, religious freedom is a force multiplier that exp expands important goods that are now lacking in the Muslim world, but whose increase would greatly benefit Muslim countries and their relations with the West. Among these goods are stable democracy, civil and human rights, economic development, the advancement of women, reconciliation among people of different faiths, and the reduction of terrorism, civil war, and international war." End quote. I would like to pose to us the following. What if religious freedom is not the force multiplier of these various goods, but rather an outcome of them? In other words, are we putting the cart before the horse? Vatican II, after all, did not pave the way for the prosperity of the West. 
It stands on its shoulders. We need to recall that there are two sides to Western history. Prosperity and genocide are two sides of the same coin. If the bad of the West, whether historical or contemporary, is other than Christian, then not everything that happens in the Muslim world is Islamic. Moreover, one wonders how meaningful the distinction between Islam and West slash Christian truly is, given how increasingly intertwined our histories are. The Middle East as we know it from today's headlines, this is how the book begins, David Frumkin's uh, classic, A Peace to End All Peace. The Middle East as we know it from today's headlines emerged from decisions made by allies during and after the First World War. When we're dealing with the Islamic world then, perhaps we are better served by imagining it as a part of ourselves that needs healing instead of something other that needs to catch up. In conclusion, I would like to congratulate Professor Philpott for, his, for constructively furthering the public debate on Islam with fact-based analysis, highlighting the centrality of religious freedom for human dignity, advocating for the inherent goodness of the Islamic faith, and prioritizing the imperative to orient the foreign policies of Western states to further these ends. The only caution that I have is that our rhetoric and our policies be applied consistently, not selectively. We cannot ignore how difficult it can be to flourish while staring down the barrel of a gun. I am impressed by the seven seeds of religious freedom Professor Philpott, Philpott identifies in Islam, and I'm inspired by Dignitatis Humanae as a document that provides guiding light, not just for Muslims, but for all of humanity. May it be so. Thank you very much. Well, uh, you have just heard from brilliant presentations from a couple of remarkable scholars. I'm here to tell you I, alas, am a complete academic phony. Uh, I am not a professor. I have no PhDs that didn't come out of a jack-in-the-box can. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I'm a workaday journalist. So uh, it is my role in situations like this to lower the tone. So let me proceed to do that for you. Uh, I want to say a couple of words first about Dan Philpott, uh, and then I'll come to the book. Um, got to know Dan a number of years ago when I first started writing on anti-Christian persecution uh, around the world. Not because I think there is any moral superiority to Christian suffering or that it is more horrific when a Christian suffers as opposed to anyone else, but simply because my perception was at the time there was kind of a wall of silence. Uh, around discussion of anti-Christian persecution in the Western media. Uh, this, you have to remember, was pre-ISIS. Uh, and in the, in, when actually, when I uh, first got interested in this subject, it was even pre-9-11. Uh, and uh, at that time, in the West, we are so accustomed to thinking of Christians as the socially dominant majority that the idea that Christians could be victims of persecution was, frankly, something of a tough sell. 
Uh, I grew up with that myself. I mean, to be honest with you, I grew up on the high plains of rural western Kansas in the 1970s and 1980s, where my idea of suffering for the faith was eating fish sticks and mac and cheese <laughs> on Fridays during the Lent. Okay, uh, that was as close as I got to carrying the cross. Uh, and, and the idea of anti-Christian persecution struck me as something that came out of the early centuries of the church, right? You know, the stories of the early saints and, you know, lions and the Colosseum and, and all of that. And I can remember when that veil of ignorance was first punctured for me. Uh, it was John Paul in 2000, during the, the Great Jubilee year, I covered his trip to uh, Ukraine. John Paul, of course, had this vision of trying to reunite Eastern and Western Christianity, which never really quite worked out. Uh, he always wanted to go to Russia, and that didn't work out either. So Ukraine was as close as he was ever going to get. Uh, and it was mammothly, mammothly important to the Pope. Uh, and so I was on the papal plane for that trip. And I remember this was the concluding mass of that trip. We were in Lviv, which is in eastern Ukraine. Um, and it's where the, the Greek Catholic population of the country is concentrated. And he was saying mass in this open airfield because it was the only place could, that could accommodate the roughly two million people who showed up. And it was a dreadful day in Ukraine, I have to tell you, okay? It was worse than this. And this, by the way, is god-awful. I mean, I'd, I'd love to tell, you know, we were talking to a friend of ours in Rome today who was like, oh, yeah, it's mid-70s, blue sky, sunny, people are having lunch outside. And we're like, we hate you. Better. <laughs> Um, but uh, in any event, it was worse than this, okay? So it was cold, rainy, crappy. It had been raining all night. This airfield had basically turned into a cold swamp, right? Uh, I was hyper-prepared American reporter. I had brought my laptop, my 11-volume History of Ukraine. I had my sat phone, because back in the day, that's what you used, right? The one thing I did not have that I really could have used that day was an umbrella. <laughs> Fortunately, Ukrainians are a very entrepreneurial people. They had set up this open-air bazaar in the back of the mass site. So, I mean, I trundled back there, and honest to God, they had everything. I, I could have rotated my tires if I had wanted to. Um, however, they were, of course, out of umbrellas. Finally, there was this Ukrainian cop who took pity on me, and he gave me one of these ponchos that they had. So I put that on, and now I'm trying to fight my way back up to the press tent, which is at the front of the mass site. And out of the corner of my eye, I catch this young woman, couldn't have been any more than like 20 or 21, who was on her knees in the mud and just crying her eyes out. And uh, I was curious, you know? So I waited for her to compose herself, and then I went up and asked if she had any English or Italian, and she spoke some English. So I asked her, I said, I don't want to invade your privacy, but I'm just curious, what has moved you so much? If you could just tell me, you know, talk about what, what has sort of taken hold of you. And she said she was thinking, the reason she was crying was because her grandfather had been a Greek Catholic priest, which is, of course, one of the 23 Eastern churches in communion with Rome. It's the largest, and it's centered in Ukraine. Uh, he had been arrested during one of the periodic Soviet crackdowns. Uh, and given the same choice that many other Greek Catholic clergy were given by the Soviets, which was they could either renounce their uh, loyalty to the pope uh, and become orthodox clergy, in which case everything would be fine, <clears throat> or they would be killed. And her grandfather had refused to renounce his Catholicism. True to their word, uh, the Soviets had killed him, but not 
through the expedient fashion of just putting a bullet in his brain, that would have been too easy. What they did was they crucified him upside down on the gulag wall and left him to hang there over the course of 48 hours until he finally expired in a kind of grotesque parody of the crucifixion. And what this young woman told me was she was crying because she was imagining what had to be in her grandfather's heart that day, looking down from heaven and seeing the Holy Father stand on Ukrainian soil. Story gets me every time. Now, here's the thing. This is not antique hagiography. This is something that happened within the arc of the lifetimes of some people who were in this room. And it happens on a staggering scale still today. My point is that when I first made that discovery and I began trying to sort of sound, a, ring a bell about anti-Christian persecution, there were very few people out there who were particularly receptive, who were trying to do the same thing, who were willing to encourage me and support me. Dan Philippot was one of them. So thank you, Dan, for your courage in that regard. Um, <clears throat> to come to your book, listen, <laughs> I don't have anything like the scholarly credentials of, uh, of our colleague here. So I, I certainly cannot comment <clears throat> on how you lay out the possibilities for space for religious freedom in Islamic societies. I will say your point about the complexity of the Islamic world certainly tracks for me. I have, over the course of the years, had the privilege of covering three popes. And at different times, I have followed them all uh, into Islamic societies, very Islamic societies around the world. And, and one of my great discoveries has been the enormous internal diversity and pluralism between societies and within societies. In, in virtually any Islamic society you want to plunk down, plunk down in in this world, you can find forces that are hostile to religious freedom, and you can find forces that are very enthusiastic uh, for it. Uh, and I think the trick always is to find those forces that are open and to engage them. So, but I'm going to try to give you three observations that come more from my neck of the woods. My day job is I cover the Vatican and I cover popes. Okay, so let me three things from your book that struck me in particular. Uh, first, uh, your treatment of the evolution in Catholicism to is sort of gradual and to some extent grudging acceptance of religious freedom uh, that culminated in Dignitatis Humanae uh, at the Second Vatican Council. I think that that is absolutely right, and of course it remains a strong point of American pride that in some ways it was American Catholics who led the charge in that regard, John Courtney Murray, but also behind the scenes, guys like Frank Spellman in New York uh, and others. <clears throat> One wonders how exact an analogy that actually is, however. Um, I mean, the, both the, the glory and the curse of Catholicism is that we have a unified decision-making structure you can intelligently answer the question, who is in charge of the Catholic Church, right? Uh, and uh, the, as I say, that is a double-edged sword um, because it can mean, precisely by virtue of being a very hierarchically organized tradition, uh, if the hierarchy is not interested in moving, it can be very difficult for us to move. Um, and the recent experience of the clerical abuse scandals are perhaps illustrative. Uh, in that regard. Um, on the other hand, when the hierarchy is interested in moving, we can actually remove, move remarkably quickly. I mean, my favorite example of this is the death penalty. You know, I mean, uh, as recently as 1967, the death penalty was still part of the fundamental law of the Vatican City State. It wasn't until 1967 that Paul VI removed it. 
And for that matter, if you want to, the next time you are in Rome, you can go down to the, what the Italians charmingly call the Museum of Justice and Grace, um, where you can find perfectly preserved in still in great working order, the papal guillotine. Um, which was last used to execute four carabinieri who dared defy the Pope's civil majesty in the Papal States in 1867. Uh, and so uh, quite recently, we were not just teaching that the death penalty was okay, we were putting our money where our mouth was. Okay, uh, and today, of course, Pope Francis just recently tweaked the catechism to make it clear that we are now absolute abolitionists when it comes to the death penalty. You know, in, in Catholic terms, that is tremendous evolution in a very short arc of time. As I say, the blessing and the curse of Catholicism. Uh, in, in most other religious traditions, and I would dare say that includes Islam, there is no such central authority. There is no ecumenical council that can speak authoritatively in behalf of the entire tradition. So one of the things I think would be interesting to talk out is that if there is going to be a dignitatis humanae for Islam, who would it come from? Uh, who would be involved in drafting it? Uh, and how would it apply across the staggering diversity of the Islamic world? I don't have answers to those questions, but I think they're fascinating ones. Second point that I thought you made uh, absolutely clearly, and as I told you at breakfast this morning, it's one of those things that seems obvious once somebody says it. Uh, but until somebody says it out loud, you probably haven't thought about it. Uh, and that's this point. Often in the West, I think we are tempted to think that the answer to radical Islamism uh, is Western-style secularism, that somehow Western concepts such as the separation of church and state in minority rights as we understand them and so forth uh, have to arrive in the Islamic world. Well, what Dan does in his book is he makes the point that we have had empirical experience uh, of attempts to impose secular states in the Islamic world. Um, there was Ataturk uh, in Turkey. There was Nasser in Egypt. Uh, there was Assad uh, in Syria. There was uh, Hussein and the Ba'athist party uh, in Iraq. And there was Sukarno and Suharto in Indonesia. Uh, and in virtually every case, the result was not greater religious freedom. It was the birth of radical Islamist movements uh, as, a as a protest against the oppression and the corruption and the perceived irreligiosity of those regimes. So whatever the solution uh, is going to be, uh, it's probably something that is going to have to be worked out on terms that are internal to Islamic conversation and Islamic culture and, and not necessarily look the way we would see it. Which brings me to my third and final point. Uh, and again, I am speaking here as a Vaticanista. Dan, I was struck in reading the book, you had, I thought, a brilliant treatment of papal teaching and engagement around religious freedom in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, in the run-up to Dignitatis Humanae. What I didn't get much of, actually, uh, towards the end of the book, when you became more prescriptive, talking about how things could develop, you talked a good deal about the role for American foreign policy and for the United Nations and for Western governments. You did not talk much uh, about the role of religious institutions in the West as interlocutors with their Islamic friends and partners and as potential change agents. And I found that curious. I mean, for one thing, we're looking now at a, is that uh, Francis in the UAE? Mm -hmm. Is that what we're looking at? 
I mean, for one thing, all three recent popes, that is John Paul II, Benedict XVI, uh, and now Francis, have made a point uh, of reaching out um, fairly aggressively, uh, I would say, to the Islamic world. Uh, sometimes with success, sometimes with heartache. One could think of Benedict XVI's speech in Regensburg and the aftermath to that. But in any event, the engagement with the Islamic world has been a top shelf priority for the Vatican. I've actually written that I think there has been a paradigm shift in the Vatican's understanding of interreligious relations over the last 20 years. <coughs> I think the Vatican has moved from thinking of Judaism as the paradigmatic foundational interfaith relationship and therefore its top priority to thinking of Islam as its top priority as the paradigmatic interfaith relationship of the 21st century. And I, we could talk about that later. But in any event, the point is Vatican and popes do a lot of stuff in this field. Um, and I would just be interested in your thinking about what contribution popes and the Holy See's diplomatic enterprise have made and potentially could make to greater promotion of religious freedom, not just in Islamic societies, but everywhere, but in a particular way in Islamic societies, since that's what we're talking about. Because it seems to me, conceptually, that one of the problems with having the Secretary General of the UN, or for that matter, the President of the United States, trying to talk to Islamic leaders about religious freedom, uh, is that, he's that those figures are talking from a secular, and political frame of reference, whereas within Islamic societies that do not often in principle recognize this distinction between church and state, the vocabulary and the culture is explicitly theological. And a, a pope, therefore, is in a position to enter into the thought world, into the cultural matrix of these kinds of conversations with a great deal more credibility. And I would just be interested in hearing you talk about what the, what the contribution there might be. In part because you may know there is an active debate around how popes have engaged Islamic societies. And it breaks down a little bit along this Islamo-skeptics, Islamo-pluralist lines. Um, uh, you know, admirers of papal engagement would say uh, that they have opened up invaluable lines of contact. Uh, that they have reassured uh, responsible leaders uh, that the Catholic Church and Western Christianity is not an enemy of Islam. <clears throat> Islamoskeptics would say they haven't gone nearly far enough uh, in pushing back and challenging violations of religious freedom. And I would be interested to know where along the continuum you think the proper touch there would be. And you know, once you answer that question, <clears throat> when I go back to Rome next week, I'll take it to Francis and give him the memo. <laughs> Uh, so in closing, I want to thank the Tocqueville program for putting this together, uh, and I want to thank all of you for being here, but in a particular way, I want to thank Dan Philpott. This is a brilliant book. Please buy this book. But beyond this book, Dan, <clears throat> your, your entire career, your friendship, your contributions have just been Herculean, and, and they've meant the world to me, so thank you. Wonderful. Gentlemen, thank you very much. That was, that was fantastic. Um, we don't have too much time, but Dan, we should start off with maybe if you want a, a, a few minutes. Questions. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So we have a tradition here in the program, uh, which is we invite our undergraduate students to ask the first question. Uh, any undergraduates uh, want to pose a question? Over here. Okay, sure. Toby. Thanks again to all of you for, for your comments and uh, your insightful 
yeah, your insightful comments. <laughs> um, my question is talking about the way that particularly in America, but in the West, uh, Catholicism in general has made, there's kind of a cultural debate uh, within Catholicism at the moment, um, talking about kind of religious freedom and, and kind of the, the integralist push, uh, how, how a lot of Catholics that uh, you could argue take their faith seriously, kind of see the West and to see the secularization of the West as kind of a, a, a harbinger of religious lukewarmness um, and, and see the, the, the effective response to be kind of this integralist push towards kind of a unification of church and state. Uh, do you think in any way that that has played into the mentality of uh, in general kind of conservative Christians and their responses to radical Islam? Um, it, has it played in any part the way America has viewed kind of the Islamic question, and, and where do you think the the effective responses to those kind of uh, intellectuals and those kind of cultural figures that kind of push towards uh, a, a more integral uh, combination of church and state? Yeah. I'd like to take a hack at that. I'd love to hear what uh, my colleagues think as well. I, um, I'd like to, you know, in, in the 19th century, um, popes were very skeptical of religious freedom there was Pope Gregory XVI who called it an absurd and erroneous proposition. He wasn't very subtle about it. There was um, Pius IX included it in this syllabus of errors. And, um, but my sense is that the, the, the reason why they were skeptical of religious freedom is because they saw it as part of a package of values that were associated with the French Revolution, which they would include relativism, what they would call latitudinarianism and indifferentism. And... So religious freedom was part and parcel of that. And one of the things that I think made Dignitatis Humanae possible was... Oh, sure, okay. One of the things that made Dignitatis Humanae possible at the Second Vatican Council was that they found a way to uh, disassociate some of the problems that they saw with modernity, and you know, which the church still does. And on the other hand the civic right of religious freedom, which could be endorsed as a matter of human dignity, not something that came from Rousseau or Locke or what have you, but something deep in the tradition about the freedom of the, of the, of the character of faith. And interestingly, my sense, I was you know, just at a conference um, on Islam and, and, and religious freedom in the Middle East, talking with many Muslims, many of the fears that they have about religious freedom is not you know, based upon deep principled analysis of natural law and so forth. But they worry about some of the things that religious freedom is packaged with, a kind of what they see as a kind of libertine uh, 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 direction in the West, along with um, something that it's a kind of a Trojan horse for Christian missionaries, um, uh, some associated with a kind of modernity, which they uh, has been kind of hostile to um, Islam for many decades. Like the 19th century popes, it, they, they fear what it's packaged with. Right, and so to get to religious freedom, you know, we, we kept wanting to argue back and say, no, no, you don't have to accept. You can be, you can hold on to your critique of, of all those things, and still endorse religious freedom as a matter of human dignity. And this is good for religion. It's actually good for good for Islam. It's not something that's hostile, a part of a kind of hostile Western project. So my opinion, the integralists, uh, uh, their mistake is wanting to kind of roll back the clock on dignitatis humanae. 
I think many of the integralists are, and by the way, integralism is a position, it can mean a lot of things, but I think one of their arguments is that they think that the kind of separation of church and state was a mistake, and they want the state to become potentially um, a kind of arm of the church again, or work more hand-in-hand with the church. And prior to Dignitatis Humanae, the Catholic Church thought that, you know, there could be a kind of legitimate coercion of religion. And, but I, th- I think that many of the integralists are motivated by a lot of the cultural problems that they see happening in the West, and they think that this is the solution. But I would say that to go back and look at the reasons for being able to detach the cultural problems from the institution and the human right of religious freedom. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they may be right about the cultural problems, but I don't think the answer is to peel back religious freedom. I mean, that's the progress we made with the 19th century popes from there to Dignitatis Humanae and the message that I think Westerners would want to um, share with Muslims. Mahan, would you agree with that observation? Do you want to speak in? Yeah, I was just listening. I didn't plan to um, uh, enter that debate. No, but the, the reservations about religious freedom are yeah. part about uh, reservations about what, they, what is perceived to come Yeah, that it's a Trojan horse. I think you articulated that concern fairly well in the book. And uh, if you look at Islamic history, and, and this is some of the stuff you bring out really nicely as well, you know, classical Islamic thought is, you know, completely was blindsided like the Catholic tradition from the Greek uh, philosophical um, uh, legacy. And it integrated that, it fused that. And so when you go back to pure Islamic thought, it's already a fusion. But today there's a resistance to new knowledge, to new experiences, and to um, new articulations of what it means to be a religious society in the contemporary world. And I think that resistance comes from a shift in the confidence in, uh, and um, the dynamics of how that new, those new experiences are being received. When Islam was expanding and in conquest mode and encountering all these new traditions, they were like, let's translate this, let's read that, that's really interesting. And they were all confident and you know. Now it's like, they feel they're being conquered. And so part of it is resisting, you know, uh, uh, imposition. And there's a closed-mindedness that's come, come with that. And, you know, this is an impasse. Someone like me uh, and Professor Ibrahim Musa and Contending Modernities, we're trying to work with a group of madrasa students. And we're like, listen, put, put the inhibitions, cultural, you know, imperialist inhibitions aside for a moment. Let's just think about the intellectual problem. It's really hard to do, right? Because that's how it's received. Who are you guys in America at a Catholic university trying to come and talk to us madrasas? But we're like, listen, we, we need to have the internal philosophical and theological discussion regardless, right? But disentangling it from the power dynamics is a challenge. And in, I think that um, successfully, you know, furthering the cause of religious freedom is going to have to deal with those in tandem. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'll, I'm going to grab the microphone. Maybe I'll ask you to turn, turn your microphone oh, yeah. back on. Uh, Raul, tell us who you are. <laughs> Hi, my name is Raul Rodriguez. I'm a fourth year PhD student here. Um, and I just have, uh, I have three questions. I'll make them quick to Professor Phil Pod, and you can answer whichever ones you would like. Um, the first one is, I was curious to hear um, what you thought of the criticism uh, specifically about Iran and Judaism, and that in some ways it was oversimplified um, in your understanding of religiously repressive states. 
Um, so I, uh, that's one question. Uh, the second question is, I found you the, the back of the book, I was sort of flipping through it. I found the suggestions interesting, but I was surprised not to see anything about principles of constitutionalism, such as separation of powers. So wouldn't that be uh, a more important thing? I mean, you can say, well, you have a universal right to religion, but isn't it more important for the United States to ensure that there are uh, separations of power so that people who are determining um, you know, if you've broken the law, do not also have the same power uh, to execute you and things like this. So the question of constitutionalism. And then thirdly, um, the question of, of natural law or using natural law in talking about natural rights as a universal human right. What, what would be the Muslim equivalent to that? Um, and wh how would we use Islamic language to talk? I mean, they have, within certain Islamic streams, they have understanding of we can use reason, uh, as opposed to simply divine scriptures, but it seems like it would be important if you really want to make this argument to use the, the terms that they're using and not you know, maybe Western terms. You want to start with the last question? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think there are um, several resources um, in Islam for something like equivalent to a natural law um, argument for religious freedom. I think in the... Um, a powerful verse in the Quran is Quran 2, 256, which says there is no compulsion in religion. And it may be one of the strongest verses in any, the text of any religious tradition in the favor of a kind of religious freedom understanding. Now different, the ones who disagree with that or don't want to emphasize that in the same way, Muslim scholars and jurists, they typically don't disagree with what it means. I just say this verse is less important or it's abrogated by another and so forth. But for religious freedom advocates, that's always been a kind of central text. And it points to something, I think, natural in a way. There is no compulsion. It's saying something about the phenomenon of, of religious embrace. Um, I think there have been voices in the tradition, like Al-Farabi in, in the Middle Ages, um, what is called the rationalist or Mutazilite tradition. Now, one doesn't make too, want to make too much of a distinction because I think um, even in what is called the Asherite tradition, which is seen as the more fideistic, it, it's too simplistic to say Asherite's fideistic, whereas Mutazilite is rationalist. There's strains in Asherite thinking as well that stress the importance of reason. And um, so I think that these are some kind of seeds of freedom, uh, as, as, uh, uh, if you will. Um, and there are contemporary um, scholars of Islam like Mustafa Akil and Abdullah Saeed and others who also stress, um, you know, the, the free character of the, um, you know, uh, of the religious act and, you know, be, being religious that um, without at all denying the overall framework of the kind of Islamic claims, um, still wanting to see religion as a phenomenon that must be embraced freely. I think there are some, there are some seeds there. So I don't want to preclude, uh, especially because we have John Allen here and Professor Mirza. Do you want to jump in on this at all, or? Uh, you know, uh, maybe just can you hit? Is this on? Or should I do? It? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's on. So you can all hear me. It's not on. Okay. Yeah, I'll just. There we go. You know, this is a. Um, uh, these are all interesting questions. On the one on natural law, there's a great uh, ex exchange. It's called a common word, mm. um, where Pope uh, Benedict, he had given a speech, it's called the Regensburg Address. And there he had included a line from somebody who's, uh, that ended up 
conveying the message, or at least this is how it was received, that Islam is irrational. Manuel II Paleologus. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Yeah. You, yeah. And. <coughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I was there, baby. Took the words out of my mouth. And the reason is, is that they don't have a natural law tradition. They believe in divine command theory. So what God said, things are good because God says they're good. They're not good because we can independently reason them to be good. And so we derive our ethics from scripture. And this if you have an arbitrary God who commands this and that, and you're not reasoning through, you can, it can lead to atrocities, right? And so Islam, by nature then, can be seen to be irrational, and that's a huge problem. So there was an exchange. Some Muslim scholars got together, and they responded to this. And uh, they tried to you know, um, uh, express a different point of view, that even within the <coughs> tradition that's considered divine command, you arrive at that through deep reasoning. And then the manner in which you reason through those texts certainly takes recourse to experiences and knowledge that is, lies outside the text. And so um, the rational tradition is no less robust. Mm -hmm. um, and this is an, a really interesting theological conversation. And then they develop that uh, in, through a couple of cycles. Um, what is important to understand is, and I think maybe if I just comment on your, because um, I thought you asked some very interesting questions very quickly. Um, the idea of authority, that how do you bell the cat of religious freedom in Islam when there's no pope? And you have all of the, so much diversity and all of these different groups uh, and none of them necessarily accept the authority uh, of the other, the authorities of the other. There's so much pluralism. Um, what the way that authority has worked in Muslim societies has been through the way kind of academic authority works. You have consensus, you have authoritative positions, you have a guild of scholars, and they critique each other, and then certain things get elevated up, right? And um, so you've had broad consensus on some key ethical issues. And overwhelmingly, like 99.99999% of them are delegitimizing these acts of indiscriminate violence that have emerged right. in response to political. Right. Like you can take any uh, uh, authority, it's actually quite bizarre, you'd be surprised, like Muslim Brotherhood president is denouncing this act, the chief of Hezbollah is denouncing this act, the president of Iran is denouncing this act, doesn't make any sense, right, because they're all terrorists. But the, the chief of Azhar, the Grand Mufti of Egypt, I mean, you can just go on and on. They, endlessly denouncing terrorism and, and uh, indiscriminate violence, trying to get a grip on. But what the problem is, it's a loss of their authority. They're no longer seen as legitimate right. because they're seen as ceding, of, uh, you know, uh, being weak um, to invaders, weak to uh, uh, imperialists. And so people are taking things in their own hands, becoming vigilantes and like, running, uh, running crazy. And we're legitimizing those vigilantes by saying, is violence is in your DNA. The only way you can be a good Muslim is if you're less Muslim. We can't conceive of a conversation that says you can be a good Muslim if you're more Muslim, if you take your text seriously, if you take your uh, authority seriously. Now, there are other problems that come with ceding ground to traditional religious authority. Because 
although they're really good on violence and terrorism, they're in fact quietest and pacifist and seen as totally you know, weak in, political, um, in the political realm, they're also seen as not as progressive, typically, when it comes to other issues, like gender issues and so on. So there's an interesting kind of um, you know, alliance with religious conservatives uh, there across, across the world. But there's also a problem when it comes to progressives. And how do we get a handle of that debate when there's so much militarism all, all, all over? I think we have to ramp down the rhetoric, put our guns down, and start talking. Please. Sorry, thanks. Okay. Do you want me no, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. If you want to take another question, that's fine. Go ahead, Charlie. Okay. I think you're both your mics are on. Okay. Uh, just very quickly on this issue of whether a propensity to violence is hardwired into Islam because of certain Quranic texts or whatever. I mean, I would just say the Catholic example would certainly give you reasons to be dubious of that. Uh, I mean, I cover the Vatican, right? The Vatican is an, is an institution whose foundational law is explicitly based on scripture and theological doctrine, and yet it has been able to make its peace over the centuries with a staggering variety of different positions based upon those same principles. I mean, anybody who covers the Vatican knows, as soon as you get a press release that begins as the church has always taught, some major change is coming, right? I mean. You know, Pope Francis just said it is okay for divorced and civilly remarried Catholics to get communion, a position that had been explicitly disavowed up to that point, and it's based on the very same scriptural lines and theological principles regarding marriage, right? So the point is, religious institutions are often far more malleable than we give them credit for, as long as the will on the ground there is able to is to be able to find a way to justify whatever it is you're trying to embrace based upon those principles. Now, I know, I know many of you have class and places uh, you have to be, uh, and usually this is about the time uh, we end. So I just want to, those who need to excuse themselves, please feel welcome to do so. The conversation is so good, though. I think we should go on for a few more minutes. And we have some questions over here. So. Why don't you shout away for the microphone? Let's put it in court. Hi, I'm Shivaji. I'm a visiting fellow at the Croc Institute for Peace Studies. So I was just looking at the three or four maps which you have. And it seems, is there a relationship between, if you think of uh, Saudi Arabia or Mecca as the epicenter, and you see that the repressive Muslim-majority countries, other than Indonesia and Malaysia and the Southeast Asia, they are there in the center. And just above them, you find uh, other countries, in whether Turkey or northern part of Africa, being secular repressive. And then you go to the western part of Africa, and they're religious. So is there a correlation between the, where Islam kind of originates and uh, as we move away? Or does it, have, does it have to do with geography? Or does it have to do with what Mahan was saying? It has to do with uh, pre-colonial history and colonial history and one kind of culture reacting to domination as one, as one becomes more politically dominant, another uh, kind of religion is just reacting to it. So it has nothing to do with religion at all, but it has to do with domination, political domination over different phases of history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Dan, I'm going to try to turn your mic on. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't know that it uh, is a matter of um, geography per se. Um, I mean, the West Africa, I, 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 the West Africa cases that are religiously free and they're concentrated in this part of the world, one of the things I do is ask why. 
and I point to two things. It's the prevalence of Sufi Islam, and then it has to do with also the history of how Islam arrived. So beginning in Muhammad's life and then the century or so afterwards, Islam spreads very rapidly through the Middle East through conquest. And, um, but in West Africa, it arrives through small bands of missionaries and traders. And because there are small bands of people, they have to make accommodations with the local authorities. And that pattern of kind of making accommodations with the people around them, even as Islam grows, continues and helps to account for the kind of um, history of pluralism and history of uh, interreligious harmony. Um, I mean, even, you, know, you also have to account for the historical change. So something like Indonesia, I mean, one of the things I point out, Indonesia was kind of a counterintuitive case for me. I call it religiously repressive. But it has two, you know, some major movements of Islamic movements that are pluralist and tolerant in their character, and also a long history of a kind of tolerant Islam with respect to Muslims with respect to minorities around them and so forth. There's a lot of uh, long history of centuries of syncretism and so forth. But um, it's really in the last 10 years or so that I think the kind of problems of a more Islamist uh, interpretation have, have increased. So the map, uh, there, there are, they, again, would hesitate to make a kind of geographic um, kind of statement. Also, the secular repressive and religious repressive are largely intermingled in the same part of the world, right? So, and it's more checkerboard than kind of uniformly geographic. So I think that would forbid against, uh, forbid a geographic interpretation as well. The one thing I can report to you is that speaking to Christian bishops in Islamic societies, that is, uh, leaders of a minority religious community in, in a largely Islamic society, over the years, when they are dealing with a situation where they detect an increasing tendency towards Islamic extremism or radicalism, almost invariably they will say that behind that there is often Saudi influence. Uh, whether it's Saudi yeah. money or Saudi organizations who are supporting those movements. So it may not be geographic proximity, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I think at times there mm -hmm. certainly is a mm -hmm. cultural proximity yeah. Yeah. Uh, that may be an explanatory factor. Yes. I, I know there's some more questions. Maybe let's formally uh, end, and then I'll invite you to come uh, talk with our panelists. Uh, two brief announcements before I, I thank our panelists uh, this evening. Uh, John Allen will be speaking. Is it at 7:30, John? Seven. At seven. Let me let me double check the time here. Uh, this evening at um, sorry, it's either seven or 7:30. I want to make sure I give you the right information. Seven o'clock at Holy Cross uh, College. Uh, Mr. Allen is speaking. Uh, the title of his talk is "Rome is from Mars, America from Venus." <laughs> That's going to be at the uh, McKenna Arena at the uh, Fifield Center over at Holy Cross College. Uh, please join us for that event. Uh, we're thrilled that uh, you're doing double duty uh, today. And um, uh, th thank you to the panelists. The conversation was uh, excellent. And thank you especially to uh, Dan Philpot. A wonderful achievement. <laughs>